Laura, I mean, are you in any rush, or could we maybe record an intro after the main session? Yeah, we can do that, we can do that. Yeah, that's a cool idea, because then we could do a little preamble about the Adonis stuff. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm going to prison, this isn't fair. (laughs) (laughs) Laura went to see Andrew Adonis the other day. Okay, well, before we get going, can I just say... If there is anybody listening to this who I have worked with in the past in journalistic circles who feels upset or betrayed by anything I say or anything I imply in this broadcast, just don't bother emailing me because I'm not going to read it. Uh, <laughs> I, As we will talk about over the course of this show, like I have put up with so much over the last, well, the sort of you know, the, the golden age of, um, of Ed Miliband really sort of coincides with, with my time in, like, liberal journalism. and um, Just the golden age I'm of politics, out. really. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, what a great time it was to be alive. <laughs> I was in a room with Ed Miliband at a New Statesman thing in 2013. <gasps> Somebody said to me, should we go and talk to him? And I was like, no. Um, <laughs> five feet away from me, you know. That's the sort of time it was. So just, yeah, like, you know, like I said, just just don't don't write to me you know i might change my email address to avoid you but um yeah <laughs> with that out of the way should we roll chris leslie <laughs> yeah so, i mean we we stick that in after the fact sadly we don't we don't actually have the hard left thing to like rev us all up for the recording Maybe one day. (laughs) Make us all angry before we kick off. Opposing the government and opposing the Conservatives, I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And, of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any dissent. Who are the hard left, Chris? Well, we know who the hard left are. in the, you know, ascendancy within the the Labour Party who associate with the hard left. You just said that we Right to right wing, hard left agenda, printing money, nationalisation without compensation, hard left wing position, hard left, the 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 hard left, hard left, hard left, the hard left, the hard left, hard left, the hard left, 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 Chubbs. Yeah, no, I knew he had a book called Chubbs, but I didn't know it was like fucking like what what how do you describe it? Like Owen Jones erotica. Yeah. Owen Jones. This is yeah. Can I buy it? I wonder if Owen's read it. Can I? 
Munengagwa. On the comms. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, Hugh has some books. We'll leave for plot description for later on. <laughs> we talk about basically Juliet's experiences being in the liberal media for several years in the early 2010s. Well, our story goes back even further. Yeah. There is a particular figure who has come back recently who has made this all come to a head for Juliet and has made her want to come out and talk about why she thinks... how so shit she had it, because she got so much shit by the end. Yeah, and why she thinks the mainstream liberal media is kind of a closed shop. Devoid of any and all self-reflection. Oh, absolutely. And it was Juliet who suggested that we get Hugh on the show alongside her. Hugh has some incredibly insightful thoughts to bring to the table as well. Yeah. (laughs) God. You can tell we've been talking for literally three and a half hours at this point, and I am just staggeringly inarticulate. I mean, I'm pretty inarticulate at the best of times, but when I've been talking to, like, clever people for four hours, I just, I've forgotten words. I'm just eating crisps. (laughs) I thought thought your mouth sounded (laughs) Anyway, yeah. Here we go. Episode one with Juliet, Jakes, and Hugh Lemmy. Yeah, we fucking love recording it. Hope you love listening to it. Enjoy. It's the real, real. It's the real, real. Policy. It's the real, real. It's the real, real. Policy. 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 Maybe we should introduce ourselves or something. <laughs> yeah, I guess that would be a nice and sort of democratic way to do it. Let's let our two guests, Juliet Jakes and Hugh Lemmy, introduce themselves. Yeah, so I'll kick off. I'm Juliet Jakes. I am a writer and filmmaker and, like, occasional journalist. I mostly describe myself as a former journalist now. I did actually have a thing in The Guardian a couple of days ago, which has kind of ruined this narrative. I thought they'd stopped asking. But (laughs) as we'll see through the course of this episode, like, The Guardian are not the publication that I'm the most angry with. Yeah. (laughs) What what is your new piece in The Guardian on so that people can seek it It out? It was about a Chilean film called A Fantastic Woman, which is a new film by a Chilean filmmaker called Sebastián Lelio, and um, it's about a trans woman whose lover, like, dies in her arms. It's particularly notable for having a woman called Daniela Vega in, who is openly trans herself and delivers this absolutely brilliant performance. As part of the writing of this piece, I could no longer pretend to have seen The Danish Girl, which I've been doing for the last couple of years. (laughs) Eddie Uh, Redmayne, uh, yellow. taking those trans jobs just i just i don't know where to start with it it's i knew it was going to be bad but i wasn't quite prepared for how stultifying it is like the whole thing just you know alicia bicandia just saying darling darling did you let that man look at your ankle and eddie (laughs) being all like no no darling he looked at lily's ankle not mine i could never countenance a man looking at my ankle and then doing (laughs) cupping his chin in his hands pouting thing it's just two hours of that that was a really long intro, Hugh. Um, it's probably... <laughs> um, yeah, my name's Hugh. I'm a, a writer as well. Not a journalist. Never have been a journalist. No interest in being a journalist. That's good. Um, I've worked in publishing for a while, although not anymore. Yeah, so um, I'm just an interested outsider. That's, that's <laughs> or, cool. or, or a disinterested outsider. Is that the right way to put it? Well, disinterested in what? That, that You know, that's what it being right depends on i think disinterested I guess, yeah. <laughs> yeah disinterested in real politics very 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 bad very sad and tragic but uh, disinterested in the liberal media understandable no, i mean i mean dis- dis- disinterested rather than uninterested 
In that in the, in the, I have no interests. I have no um, <laughs> dog in the fight. Fair enough. <laughs> a sort of an, an almost impartial observer. No, not impartial. Not impartial. <laughs> Disinterested, but not impartial. Disinterested, but with strong opinions, yeah. Uh, okay, there we go, there we go. Okay, well, it's great to have you on the show, Hugh. So, where do we start with all this? Because Juliet has written an extensive amount of notes um, <laughs> detailing this, this whole narrative. I mean, it starts in 2003. <laughs> yeah, it actually starts slightly earlier even than that, because oh. the reason why I wrote to Jack and said I'd love to do a show with you talking about my experiences with journalism is because, you know, I sort of more or less quit mainstream journalism about three years ago. And over those three years, I've kind of thought to myself, well, do you know what? A lot of this was quite frustrating and lots of things didn't go as well as I hoped. But on the whole, you know, I like to think that at least what I did had a positive impact. And despite all the things about it that irritated me, you know, I'd do it again and I'm glad I did it. And the thing that has tipped me over from that sort of fairly generous position, I guess, to the position I'm taking now where I'm just furious about the whole industry and how it works again is the return of Johan Hari. Ah, yeah. So we, we wanted to get this episode out while this was still kind of in the news cycle or he was still doing his promotional tour and, you know, going from celebrity's door to celebrity's door like, hey, uh, can I get a quote? Please. I believe yeah, you're while a... he's still DMing everyone on Twitter, going, uh, "Can you just uh, tweet this for me, please?" <laughs> well, he, he DM'd a friend of mine saying, "Hey, read your book, really liked it. I'm going to give it to my friend Noam Chomsky, my uh, close you... personal <laughs> friend. <laughs> you enjoyed uh, Lost Connections by Johan Arion." <laughs> well, um, um, I, th- I think the definitive tweet on uh, Johan Hari's current promotional run was yes. by one at Orwell fan. <laughs> said, Hi Simon, it seems a long time now since you were teaching me to be a journalist. Great days. If you could just copy and paste this message, that would be great. Really enjoying reading Lost Connections by Johan Hari. Highly recommended. <laughs> Cheers, mate. <laughs> well, there's a good one here by Will Davis, who is, you know, oh, Will oh, Davis. a great writer. Really, really good writer. And he says, imagine the reaction if a multinational corporation tried to sell a product like this. And he links to a Hari tweet that says, this is how much childhood trauma increases your likelihood of becoming a depressed adult. Brackets. My book gives the evidence about how you can overcome those odds. And then there's a picture and it says survivors of childhood trauma are 3,100% more likely to attempt suicide later in life. Christ. But there is a solution. And then there's a picture of Lost Connections by Johan Hari. Oh my God. Hashtag depression is not what you think it is. <laughs> I hate this man with every fibre of my being and I really 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 think he should be in prison (laughs) (laughs) well he certainly shouldn't be worming his way back into mainstream journalism which is I mean bear in mind he was sacked from his student newspaper at Cambridge in 1999 for um, quite radically exaggerating the numbers of students on a protest which was just the sort of thing that his senior at Cambridge was just the thing he could actually kind of pin on Hari I think he'd had his suspicions for quite a while someone who has a track record going right back to student days of you know at best embellishing you know the reason why i kind of wanted him to frame this story is because he's really the first comment journalist i remember kind of emerging i sort of started following broadsheet journalism i guess around about the turn of the century when i went to university and hari is only a couple of years older than me Mm. so i really remember him coming through and just thinking like who is this guy and why do people i 
otherwise respect seemed to like him. You know, round about that time, he was cheerleading for the Iraq war. Mm. He later apologised for, but I don't understand now or then how you could look at what was happening at that time and not think anything other than this is disgusting. Um, And it was round about the same time that I was sort of thinking, you know, I wanted to write, I wanted to make films. I didn't really want to be a journalist. It was very much plan B. But back in 2002, it seemed like a viable, you know, way of making money to support other types of writing that I wanted to do. So you're you're Uh, more sort of interested in culture writing, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I got into journalism just after I graduated, round about 2003 to and you know i've never really covered kind of contemporary politics directly that you know it's just not quite been what i wanted to do largely because you know at this time 2003 and onwards (laughs) contemporary political landscape was just so utterly bleak tony Uh, tony tony exactly (laughs) my man tony had just finished kind of bombing things and well no he hadn't finished had he and he just started just got really, started yeah <laughs> uh, he had his cheerleaders on the bbc and elsewhere and in uh, the independence comment section yeah so, so, so um <laughs> wasn't johan harry although he's obviously much more right wing he basically had the owen jones column in the independent before owen jones didn't he did they bring owen on after yeah the they thing bought happened owen and, the scandal yeah they bought uh, owen and after the scandal and also i think laurie penny yeah, okay Oh, good. But I I think it's worth remembering as well that in terms of framing this period, the landscape then was so different in terms of like the amount of opinion that was Mm. produced without social media and without Twitter. There were, like I remember when I was at school and sort of doing my A-levels around that time and starting to become aware and read these sort of papers. And there were so few sort of strands of opinion that were being offered purely because of the sort of technology at the time, you know, that these are still mainly like print papers and there just wasn't the space in the way there is now to produce the huge amount of comment and opinion that we now frames the landscape now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, something that interested me around about that time, I think my first ever journalistic commission was sort of in December, I think, 2003. And I got asked to write something for an antique book magazine called Rare Book Review that someone I knew worked on. And uh, I got asked to review a new biography of Winston Churchill. And, you know, I reviewed the book and I filed my copy very tightly within my thousand word limit. And the piece of the review that I was the most happy with was, you know, I mentioned that the reviewer omitted the reference to the CIA coup that Churchill backed uh, during his second spell as prime minister in 1953. Mm-hmm. It was the coup to overthrow the elected president of Iran, Mossadegh, who'd wanted to nationalise the Iranian oil industry. And he'd been overthrown, replaced with the Shah. And I talked about how that led directly to the Iraq war and that got taken out of the print edition and you know whether or not it was like a conscious act of censorship on the part of whoever edited it I don't know obviously I found out a lot more about self-censorship and things as I kind of got more into all of this but you know it really irked me that that got taken out of the print edition but it stayed on the online edition which of course made me think that a lot more was possible in online journalism and yeah you know again this sort of time like the Guardian had a website at that point. I'm not sure the Independent even had a website yet. Um, wow. If it did, it was really poor. Wow. <laughs> it might well have done. I might have this wrong, but I seem to remember that it had very little online presence. And you know, there was sort of this point where it was obvious that the internet was going to start changing the media, but that hadn't really kicked in yet. Like Hugh says, there wasn't really that much commentary, and you were still in this thing that used to be the case a lot more with comment journalism, which was where you had commentary in the Sunday papers and in the Saturday kind of supplements. But in the weekly papers, the people who were doing columns were mainly like older 
leisure journalists who weren't considered, you know, maybe weren't that mobile or have been rewarded for years of more draining investigative work yeah. with the column. When was Seamus Milne, who's obviously now Corbyn's Director of Communications and Strategy, the editor of Comment is Free at The Guardian? Because oh, that's question yeah um... yeah because he was well he's obviously on the radical left and was seen as somebody who was much more willing to publish like a wide range of views in their comment section than the guardian traditionally have been yeah i mean i think that happened precisely because you know the labor left and anything to the left of that was seen as just being kind of completely defeated and that argument as being won so newspapers could sort of you know, newspaper like The Guardian could maybe feel a little bit more comfortable with bringing in voices from a more sort of radical left position, safe from the knowledge that they're never going to coalesce into any sort of like wider political threat. Yeah. You know, it's, it's always good to quote Ulrika Meinhof, I think. Um, and she wrote about it. There's an Ulrika Meinhof piece called Columnism. Good where tactics, she talks about, good strategy. Yeah, just, just all round. <laughs> All around good, I think. But um, <laughs> she wrote a piece called Columnism, where she talks about columnists being used by newspapers to sort of give the illusion of a wider editorial policy than they're actually pursuing. You know, columnists are kind of positioned as outliers, and the editorial positions will generally be far less radical than you yeah, know, yeah. Their tame stuff. Navarra did an episode with this, and I think Laurie Penny was on it in like sort of 2013 or something, and that's definitely worth looking up. That's the kind of thing that's always been on my mind with all of this along with the Chomsky documentary Manufacturing Consent which I saw around about this time I won't go on about that for too long because it's on YouTube and you know, it's like <laughs> long, but you should all watch it basically because yeah, long was that? Yeah I mean he's, he's, it's, it's discourse management is what he's discussing and it's quite interesting from the current vantage point to watch the film and look at the sort of techniques he pulls out about how liberal democracy gives the illusion of allowing an airing to voices to the left but actually, you know, just neutralise them through other means by telling everyone they're boring or normalising phrases like loony left or just like repeatedly people. So that was something that was always on my mind as well. I mean, it took a long time to actually get to the point of writing for sort of mainstream publications. You know, I spent a lot of time, I did a master's in literature and film and I was looking at doing a PhD, which I didn't get funding for at the time. So most of my journalism was around that and another job, just in a call centre in Brighton. I did a lot of writing for a film magazine. I was sort of a film critic more than anything at that point. I wrote for this magazine called Film Waves, which is long gone now, like, don't look for it. <laughs> it had no budget and it had spelling mistakes on the cover. But, you know, they would let me write about whatever I wanted to. So, you know, if I wanted to like do a 3,000 word article on Gita Board's films or something, you know, I could just do it. Probably didn't even have to check with them, actually. I could just send it in. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen, I've seen... The one famous one. <laughs> the Society of the Spectacle. I've, I've even read the book. But... <laughs> yeah. But, you know, including the people that I think we're going to end up talking about. <laughs> I reckon they so then what happened next in your journey towards the liberal commentariats? Well, I mean, I got more and more interested in the way that like trans issues in particular were being represented. And I think through the mid noughties you know, a lot of things were focused on The Guardian more than anywhere else because of the position The Guardian occupies, you know, sort of setting the sort of left limits of mainstream media discourse, I guess. Yeah. But uh, yeah. also down to Seamus Mill, I mean, I think it's hard to grasp, 
you know, he really did change the way that the Guardian comment was seen. Like, he wasn't just a comment as free editor. He oversaw all of comment, and he was sort of integral into creating the Guardian as a place where essentially public debate did happen over that time. So I think that's probably why a lot of these things emerged on the Guardian and not in the Independent or places mm-hmm. like that. Well, this was it. I mean, the Guardian were really trying to manage the coming of the internet with this sort of slightly utopian idea, I guess, that, you know, the internet could somehow make writer and commenter equal. But, you know, you still have the above the line, below the line divide. But in the period sort of before Twitter, in particular, The Guardian, I think, really came to fulfil a quite, as Hugh says, a quite central place in sort of British public debate and the sort of left-hand side of it. And I mean, what was interesting with The Guardian is that pretty much everything that was published in any section of The Guardian, all the observer for that matter, would end up on the site. And it would sort of look as if it was under the rubric of comment. So one of the things that, you know, made me and a, a lot of other people very angry back in 2004 was a Julie Bindle piece entitled Gender Benders Beware, which was published in, I think, maybe the Weekend magazine. But of course, it went online. And, you know, this is at a point where trans community is really starting to come together Social media is not a thing yet, really. You know, I don't think even MySpace has taken off at this point. But, you know, people are organising on forums. Yeah. Um, yeah. So she wrote this piece, which is still online. You can still find it. And it sort of opens up with this critique of the Human Rights Act, which she said had confirmed fears of many feminists about, quote, fancy lawyers defending all sorts of scum. Oh, Uh, Oh, good. And she celebrates the British Columbia Supreme Court's decision in Vancouver to bar a transsexual woman called Kimberly Nixon from training as a rape counsellor and says, for now, the law says that to suffer discrimination as a woman, you have to be uh, a woman. And then there's just a more general attack on trans people for conforming stereotypes. And there's all these lines like, (laughs) fuck me shoes and bird's nest hair for the boys beards, muffins and tattoos for the girls. Think about a world inhabited just by transsexuals. It would look like the set of Greece. And, you know, as you can probably imagine, this was a bit of a lightning rod moment for the trans community. Wasn't trans she around. defended by other Guardian columnists in this as yeah. well? Like, I and think Suzanne it, Moore spoke out in her defence. Yeah, and it was usually on these sort of freedom of speech grounds, which I just thought was being used in quite a kind of disingenuous way, because people started to organise, notably against Stonewall, which at the time was an LGB organisation. Yeah. Uh, oh. And I think... And then seven or maybe eight, they gave Bindle their Journalist of the Year award, and there was pretty big protest from the trans community, which, as is still the case with sort of analogous issues, well, and this issue, come to think of it, you know, any opposition to that was cast as kind of bullying and intimidation and, I don't know, like, worse than Stalin and Trotsky put together and, you know, all of it. But why it kind of irritated me, I think, was I thought, well, look, this argument around freedom of speech, it ignores the fact that it's not a level playing field at all. And the way this would work would be editors had this preconception that nobody was interested in trans politics. And if I've learned one thing from my time in journalism, if editors say nobody's interested in this issue or this perspective... (laughs) Yeah, you know, yeah. you know where this is going. It means everyone's interested in it, but you don't want them to be. Mm. Um, yeah. Nobody so, wants pro Corbin pieces. No, no matter, exactly. you know, no matter how many hits they get when we do put them <laughs> on our website, nobody wants them. Yeah, exactly. And you know, nobody wants trans politics. But we'll come back to that. So, you know, I was still looking at like different ways of getting into journalism, like primarily as a means of just supporting myself. Like I said, it wasn't something I was doing for the love, really, but 
in 2009, when I started transitioning, a good friend of mine, a novelist called Joe Stretch, who I've known since university, we'd always kind of supported each other's writing and read each other's stuff. He suggested that I blog on the transition for The Guardian. And I said to him, Joe, have you read The Guardian stuff on trans issues? And mm. um, he was like, no, no, what's, what's the deal with it? And so I sort of explained that there was this problem with, you know, their columnists being given kind of more or less, it seemed, total freedom. A number of their sort of star columnists, you know, Jermaine Greer was popping up. Julie Birchall as well, of course, we'll come back to her. You know, would write these sort of articles just sort of ripping trans people to shreds on these kind of really lazy, disingenuous stereotypes. And then, you know, The Guardian would just commission a response from a trans writer, mm-hmm. someone called C.L. Minu, who used to pop up occasionally, who I've not really heard of before or since. But, you so know, just keep the argument in the same place. They'd create this kind of illusion of balance, like, you know, yeah. this is just a debate we need to have, and if you can hear both sides' arguments, then people can just make up their minds. And... Well, exactly, and some people might decide that trans people should be allowed to exist, but some people might decide that they shouldn't. But, you know, exactly. we have the debate, so it's fine. And there was no thinking about what those terms meant, you know, and who was setting them. Which is why I kind of thought that it would be good to do a rolling blog about transition. Because I sort of knew that editors, you know, wouldn't let me just write something kind of regular on trans politics. Which I've been doing for some LGBT publications in Brighton. Mm-hmm. I've written for of things called 360 and 180 News for a couple of years and had written fairly regularly on issues around like trans in the media and in politics but you know I was very interested in the media representation I think in 2004 like the Gender Recognition Act was passed and that was a really big legal victory and I think after that a lot of people had a similar idea at a similar time which was you know actually the media was doing us a lot of damage whether it was comedies like Little Britain or even like League of Gentlemen which I otherwise like yeah uh, I seen much of that the, the, Make, the latter but of jokes yeah little, uh, little britain obviously yeah, that that's appalling for those kind of I mean, stereotypes it's, it's aged very badly hasn't it and it didn't look <laughs> <laughs> so you know i kind of thought that like a rolling blog could let me just like change the terms of the argument and i could use this sort of transition structure to like crowbar in a lot of stuff around trans history and politics and culture because there was this sort of preconception that we didn't have any of those things and you could use the hyperlinks and open comment sections to, you know, open up space beyond the text. And I think, you know, one of the things about The Guardian is that it is at least a big enough organisation so that if you have a problem with a thing that one bit of the paper does, or even like a particular group of editors do, you can try someone else. Yeah, um, yeah. And I went through the life and style section, so I was nowhere near the comments section. And the life and style editor at the time didn't say anything about The Guardian's other trans publications, but they did say that they wanted to do something good for the trans community. And they more or less let me get on with it. And I think they did that because it was cheap. They asked me to write three pieces up front. And they said that, you know, if we like them, we'll commission a whole series. And I think if I'd done the three pieces for them and they said, no, sorry, this isn't going to work, they'd have given me a kill fee, which, you know, they paid £90 an article at the time for things that were just online. And that probably would have given me like 200 quid or something and just said, look, sorry, you know, too bad. We tried. But they ended up liking the pieces. I won't talk too much about them because a lot of this is in my book, actually. Yeah. Do you want to tell, um, remind, uh, well, I don't know if they might not know, tell our listeners what your book is <laughs> and is, stuff. Which is Franz a Memoir, which came out on Verso in 2015. And I mean, it is, it's, again, it is a transition memoir, but because I'd already blogged all of that for The Guardian, you know, the thing that I couldn't write about in The Guardian was the process of getting into the media itself. Mm. You know, Occasionally hint at things I'd seen, 
But the book is basically really about the process of like apprehending a trans identity through the media and then trying to change the way the media dealt with that. But, you know, it allowed me to write reasonably explicitly about my interactions with the media. Although, you know, I think there's still quite a lot of self-censorship. I wrote that in sort of 2014, yeah. beginning of 2015, when I was still on the fringes of all this stuff. I mean, one of the things I really noticed at the time, like I joined Twitter a couple of weeks after that series started. It was like a fortnightly thing. And I joined Twitter. I didn't really want to, to be honest. So just kind of, <laughs> it seemed like everyone was on it. And I was like, right, I'm going to do this. I think I have to go on Twitter. And it took me ages to figure it out. I didn't like it. But, Nobody you know, does. <laughs> no. But I just no, that's not the point. How many journalists like complained about the amount of abuse they got in comment sections and on Twitter and stuff. And I thought, well, do you know what? Like when I came out as trans, I had so many like individuals and groups of people hurl abuse at me in the street, knowing full well that if I answered back to any of it at all, or even looked like I'd noticed it, any sort of response to it would then lead to, you know, very directly to me just getting my head kicked in. So, you know, I wasn't really that bothered about somebody called like Piss Flaps 97 leaving like, a <laughs> comment on one of my posts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, somebody in the street might have drowned me in a vial of piss. Who knows? But, <laughs> um, that was incredible. That was Luke Akehurst who was uh, threatened yeah. with the vial of piss. Yeah. <laughs> <That's the police>. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favourite things that's ever happened. Up there with somebody threatening to obliterate James Ball's horse. But... Um... <laughs> Could, what happened there? I don't think I'm familiar with this one. Well, this was during the Julie Birchall thing, so maybe we should come back to that in a bit. But, um, yeah, okay. someone just tweeted the words, fuck you, James Ball, I am going to obliterate your horse. Uh, <laughs> Amazing. The Guardian on, well, no, the Observer, I should say, on freedom of speech grounds. Um, James Ball got a horse. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no. God, Jimmy Bollock rides a horse. <laughs> I think it's gone now. I think somebody obliterated it. But, he um, makes a little cameo in your notes, doesn't he, James? He Ball? does, but you... we'll come back. To okay, that. we'll keep the listeners on tenterhooks. With oh that. God, the it's suspense! Nice. This is it's Hitchcockian. Every time, uh, every time I read any of his Twitter, I always think of that Viz comic, Mister Logic. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. <laughs> it's this comic, it's this character called Mr. Logic, who just like, uh, he responds to every statement with an extremely pedantic, like extremely logical response. It just takes everything extremely literally and, and does that and always ends up, you know, being arrested or, or, or beaten up or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, he is one of those guys where his entire political outlook is predicated on, like, means-testing things. <laughs> yeah. He's a sort of um, dictionary definition of everything, you know. Everything, you know, like, there's no reading of, like, context or, like, the sort of fluidity of, like, social exchanges. You know, it's just straight to the dictionary and it's a really bizarre way of operating. Yeah. I guess I guess if you're a statistical journalist, it makes sense. Um, <laughs> well, I bet he's good at woodwork as well. <laughs> well, I hadn't seen Mr. Logic before, so I've just Googled it. And the first image that comes up is like a pixel-perfect drawing of Mr. Logic. And there's a speech bubble saying, such is my name, so therefore one can assume that this comic strip is in some way about me. pain in the That's Jimmy Bollock, the fake news maestro. <laughs> So anyway, um, yeah. he's one of the many people that I kind of ended up meeting through moving to London. You know, I was living in Brighton when I did most of the Guardian series, or at least the first half of it. 
and always felt like a bit of an outsider and, you know, started to get dragged into these London media circles. And, you know, because I, mean, I guess it's just kind of curiosity, really. I'd get invited to these sort of, you know, swanky do's and I'd go partly because just like I was really struggling for money and I wanted the free food. Um, <laughs> yeah. Drink. But there's a quote from someone. I really wish I could remember who said it. It's something along the lines of like, I never dine with my enemies so I can keep my hatred pure. <laughs> <laughs> If you meet people, you know, no matter what you think of what they write or how they comport themselves in kind of public discourse, like most people when you meet them are basically all right. I kind of feel that. I kind of feel like real politic would lose a bit of its edge if we sort of, if the people who we were talking about were too real to us. Well, exactly. The consequences of their shitty politics are very real to us. We can see them everywhere every day. But if we were, you know, having champagne with James Ball at some some swanky do, as you say, God knows why real politic would be invited to some swanky media do. But if we did... Hey, I I get invited to swanky stuff. (laughs) Well, then there's something seriously wrong with the way we're going about our show, if that's the case. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry, Juliet. I, I, I get what you're saying there. Totally. No, no, I mean, you know, I mean, in hindsight, I think I got that wrong. I did sort of feel myself sort of getting sucked in a bit, really. But one of the few people I didn't meet was Johan Hari. And when I joined Twitter in sort of summer 2010, I thought, well, do you know what? I've never liked this guy, but I hadn't really paid any attention to him since 2003. And the time I joined Twitter was a time that Johan Hari was tweeting and writing articles about some homophobic stickers that had gone up in the East End, which him and a number of his media mates just assume was the work of the muslims you know Um, you say him and bindle probably remember a lot more about this i've got richard seymour's piece about it from the time up about it Uh, there was a very concerted effort to create um, a sort of media narrative around tower hamlets about homophobia being on the rise and it was very very clumsily done and i suspect large parts of it like totally fabricated i don't know perhaps some stickers did go up you know anyone can print off some stickers and stick them up but there was also i think at the time of an an attempt to organize a gay pride march and very much a gay pride march uh, yeah through 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 the east end which was in the end scuppered because it turned out that the, the guy who was organizing it one of the organizers was a member of EDL. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's a very concerted attempt by the far right to try and bring in, as they did throughout that period, this sort of, um, if you're gay, you should be anti-Muslim. And oh. they were really, really fed by some mainstream columnists at the same time. Luckily, the whole thing collapsed and there was actually a sort of different community uh, queer pride that happened in the end with some trade unions and stuff. Yeah, as to sort of paraphrase Richard Seymour, the, the sort yeah. of liberal case for homophobia is, is... No, sorry, the liberal case for Islamophobia rather predicated on the fact according to this narrative like you know basically well the way they'd kind of try and say it is that islam is sort of at its core not conducive to gay rights and women's rights and this is an argument you see in basically the sort of rhetoric around the left and iran or the left and palestine and time and time again i find that you you see tweets aimed at say owen jones Um, yeah owen still gets that exact same stuff, you know, Which, seven years on from the whole Tower Hamlets thing that kicked yeah, off in, like, 2011. Yeah. Which, uh, oh, Owen, you know, you say you're against... Well, well, they'll use it to attack him when he criticises transphobia. He'll get some hawkish liberal quote-tweet him saying, so you claim to be against this prejudice and so on, but you support a regime that 
throws gay people off crane, hangs them from cranes or throws them off tall buildings or something. Graham and... Jones, Iranian hangman. <laughs> Graham Jones, Iranian hangman, yeah. Fateful tweet. So yeah, th- this is something I've noticed quite a lot, a sort of centrist hysteria around Islam, which is often cloaked in the language of gay rights. Can opposition. I just read a bit of Richard Seymour's piece on this, entitled, Can We Finally Talk About Johan Hari's Islamophobia from February 2011? And the piece ends by saying, Hari went on to claim... East London has seen the highest increase in homophobic attacks anywhere in Britain. Everybody knows why, and nobody wants to say. It's because East London has the highest Muslim population in Britain, and we have allowed a fantastically intolerant attitude towards gay people to incubate there in the name of tolerance. And Seymour says that Arva Vidal was pissed off with this, and wrote to Hari to explain that metropolitan crime figures actually showed a reduction in anti-gay attacks in those areas with the highest Muslim populations. Hari snorted that she was quote, extremely unintelligent. But Vidal was just underlining a point that had already been made to Hari by Patrick Lilly of UK Black Pride that he'd ignored. The exploitation of homophobia to demonise East End Muslims is becoming urgent as Islamophobes with the support of EDL members try to organise what they're calling an East End Gay Pride event, though the organisers apparently have nothing whatever to do with the East End. So that was what was going on, but Johan Hari's year got a bit worse, didn't it? So this was 2011 then. So by this point, had he, despite his Islamophobia, he had toned down his hawkishness by this point. Had he he backtracked on Iraq? Yeah, he'd apologise. Yeah, he'd kind of moved with a more sort of sceptical left when it came to Britain's foreign interventions. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, what had also happened to his career that I hadn't really noticed was this kind of Peter Principle thing, I guess, whereby, you know, he'd written a lot of comment pieces and people had liked them. So he started doing a lot of long-form interviews with a huge range of people, you know, anyone from, like, George Michael through to the Italian left philosopher Antonio Negri, which was sort of where he came unstuck, but not for a while and not before he'd moved on, even from there to doing, you know, these sort of big, prestigious foreign assignments in the Central African Republic and Dubai and elsewhere. But basically, around about the same time as the phone hacking scandal and the Leveson inquiry, it sort of came to light that a lot of Hari's long interviews contained a lot of, like, plagiarised material. So maybe we should talk a bit about that. Okay. So, Hugh, you know quite a bit about this episode in Hari's career. Yeah, I followed it quite close at the time. I was sort of reading a lot of Negri stuff and, yeah, I I sort of followed that whole scandal because it was really, I felt, like, really indicative of of the challenge that social media and blogs and stuff were really offering to like the sort of the way that the mainstream commentary and opinion world was constructed. What happened with Harry and Antonio Negri? You could just sort of give everyone some context yes, for that. Uh, I, I can't remember off the top of my head when the original interview came out. I think it was sort of 2008, maybe. And at the time, Negri was promoting a book in the UK that he'd done with, I think, Continuum. I might be wrong on that, but no, I think it was Continuum. And obviously, as sort of standard with book releases, you know, you do a whole round of interviews and things like this. And he had done one with Johan Hari at the ICA. And actually, at the time, people had drawn attention to how unfairly they felt Negri had been treated in it. There were so many implications that he made in the article were just false. Things that 
Negri had been accused of regarding his role in the autonomia movements in the 70s and then there was an implication that he'd been involved in the Red Brigades which has never been the case and was I don't think ever proven but he was, he did serve some time at this point he'd been exiled for 20 years in Paris where Mitterrand had offered them asylum and then he came back to serve his time in order to there had been a period where he'd been I think elected as an MP in, in Italy and then he served I think six years during which he wrote his book on Spinoza yeah so but, his um, reputation only grew in the time that he was incarcerated absolutely yeah he was doing his promotional tour and this hack job came out really it was a it was really um a sort of assassination piece if you'll excuse the pun because it did sort of accuse him <laughs> of, of that talked about these victims these like which is never really named and accused him of being a terrorist and apologist yeah. for stalinism which if hard well, I, actually, Harry obviously did bother to read some Negri because he, he, he uh, plagiarised a large part of it. If he's ever to understand it, then well, maybe he, he just like ignored it for years, and then he finally picked it up one day, and he was like, "Oh man, this is good shit. I should have read this sooner." <laughs> but yeah, no, there was these implications that he'd been obviously like some sort of yes, some sort of supporter for like a sort of Stalinist form of communism, and like. I mean, real nonsense. And it was picked up at the time by uh, Alberto Toscano, who wrote a, a letter, I think, to the Independent. Or There was an open letter that was going around on sort of listservs and uh, forums at the time and saying that he had been really misrepresented and that this was a sort of a terrible interview that was intellectually dishonest. And then also there was a letter as part of that, that there was a uh, sort of addendum to that letter by his publicist, uh, Rowan Wilson, which sort of suggested that a lot of the incidents that were claimed never took place. You know, if you read this profile of him, he paints him as like a really comically arrogant Italian intellectual European leftist sort of thing um, there's this whole thing about him lighting a cigarette in the ICA and then the waitress comes and tells him to put it out which he does but in this sort of like cynical way uh, this, this like this <laughs> If you read the, like, the article, there is this sort of strange aspect where he says that this waitress comes over and points to the uh, no smoking sign and he then puts out his cigarette in the ashtray. And then you realise afterwards, like, why is there an ashtray if it's a no smoking? You don't have an <laughs> Like, cynically putting out a cigarette reminds me of some uh, description. It was obviously supposed to be kind of menacing of Corbyn sitting in a PLP meeting, loudly munching noodles. <laughs> <laughs> If anything, that's worse than the Stalinism, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yes, yeah, so yeah. it was a, it was a real like nonsense hack piece, and uh, people had pulled it up before. I think that I think there'd been like some earlier people pointing out that this, you know, obviously there'd been lots of implied stuff to do with plagiarism, and Private Eye had previously had some stuff suggesting that he'd been plagiarising. But that was this uh, real cut and dried piece that DSG, who was this sort of blogger, like a yeah, the territorial support group. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. They just did a sort of a step by step posting the screenshots from that interview and then also the original book that was it was this sort of A to Z of Negri's thoughts or something it was also in interviews with a, I think a French yeah, anyway, yeah. The, the, it was the book Negri on Negri and it was published just the year before it was published in 2003 by Anne Dufourmantel yeah, yeah. and essentially the territorial support group this blog just posts the screenshots from Dufourmantel's clips I mean there's no way you can alongside his and yeah there's no argument against it <laughs> there's, yeah there's just no argument against it and also takes about context it's a real shitty way of doing it because it's not even as he'd later claimed that he was trying to use these quotes that he'd plagiarised as a way of better elucidating people's positions because obviously in interviews people aren't always as articulate as they are in their written work but it's not if you read the interview the context of it doesn't bear any relation to your original context of the quotes anyway so that sort of came out and for me I thought that was 
was really interesting because there was a real concerted effort to ignore it, but it built up a head of steam on Twitter. A journalist for, I think it was actually The Sun at the time, or I can't, but now for Channel 4 News, a journalist called Brian Whelan, he took it on and sort of pushed it further. And then he did a lot more research into previous things and found this whole catalogue of other examples. And then another guy, an author called Jeremy Duns, he also did the same thing and, you know, really went through, I think between the two of them, they went through hundreds and hundreds of interviews and found this, his journalistic practice essentially was, was plagiarist. <laughs> and what uh, was that Whelan was on the left and Duns was sort of more or less on the right. And yeah. I think yeah. Duns was an... is a very hawkish kind of guy, isn't he? Yeah, but, you know, that's liberalism. If you stand in the middle of the road, you know, that's how you get killed. Um, <laughs> got, I've actually got Harry article up at the moment. You know, the Independent haven't taken down his archive like they should have done. Uh, so here we go. So he starts off by repeating the allegation that Negri was... The murderer of Aldo Moro in the late 70s, the uh, former Italian prime minister. I mean, this stuff is now just pretty much the reserve of Italian fascist conspiracy theorists. Like, this this isn't even a sort of centrist position in, in Italy. This is, like, understood as being part of that period of the years of lead and really this strategy of tension that was happening at the time of the state colluding with the far right, etc., etc. This is really, you know, some dodgy dodgy stuff that he's or would these italian conspiracy theorists publish lines like after 400 pages of this this being negri's empire i feel like i have been raped by a dictionary of sociology because that's a, that's a genuine line in this article yeah why is it still on the internet can't know i'm not reading any more of that this was round about the same time as his obituary of derrida wasn't it <laughs> oh god yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, there's a real class thing going on. There's a real class thing going on. He consumes this sort of stuff. Like, this is how he's portraying it. Like, I've read this, so you don't have to. I've read yeah. it, and I can tell you this is nonsense. So don't get to you know, Mark Fisher. It Mark Fisher was very talking about. Yeah, yeah. Mark Fisher at the time was talking a lot about this and saying it's an attempt at policing discourse. Yeah. Uh, and as a as a class aspect, and it's saying to working class people like, I understand this, and therefore I understand that it's nonsense, and you don't even have to bother reading it. Mm. Which I think that was. Mark was saying at the time, and I think it was very intuitive. Yeah, I see that. 400 pages of this. Yeah. Yeah. This was sort of coming to a head in lots of ways. Obviously, the Leveson inquiry was happening at this point. And so, you know, in some ways, the Hari story was getting a bit lost amidst that. But in other ways, of course, it was particularly pressing for the publications that were putting themselves up as, as better than the news of the world to have their own houses in order. So there was apparently an inquiry at the Independent run by Andreas Whitton Smith, who was overheard describing Johan Hari as a genius at some sort of, you know, swanky thing. And then people were just saying, well, why are you running this inquiry? And in the end, Hari resigned. But not after, a, I mean, after a period of really trying to sort of obfuscate it, there was like a period of there was this ignoring thing and there was sort of claims it was politically motivated against him from the far left. Okay. And then... Yeah. Yeah. against the gays yeah there was implications of homophobia and then there was this sort of thing like oh well it's just one or two incidences there wasn't this like putting your hands up and saying i've been caught out he was pushed rather than jumped i'd say yeah and i mean you could see him at the time really laying the foundations to come back you could see a very carefully worded apology that like you say sort of only acknowledged the things that he absolutely had to acknowledge you know, there were lots of people talking about things in some of his foreign reporting that seemed extremely dubious, but were very hard to prove one way or the other. But, you know, in the context of like career long malpractice really didn't look very good. It's just occurred to me that like Johan Hari might consider some of that libelous. So if you want to sue me, Johan, like go ahead. 
you know, you don't have a reputation, I don't have any money, but, you know, and what money I got asked to pay you, I'd, like, give to the Corbyn project and not have to give it to you. So, just don't get that. (laughs) 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 I'm just looking at a really good blog by a blogger called Splintered Sunrise from The Time, where he talks about, you know, Hari's plagiarism in the interviews, a suspicion that a lot of his Vox Pop quotes have been made up, a reportorial style that tends to be careless of the facts, straying easily into exaggeration, embellishment, sometimes into outright invention, and strong circumstantial evidence that either Hari or someone close to him was engaged in extensive Wikipedia sock puppetry, including the postings of allegations about critics of Hari that were flagrantly libelous. And it was often people I don't like. I mean, you know, it was like Nick Cohen and Richard Littlejohn and others. Um, you know, pox on both of their houses. But, you know, that's not... <laughs> I do think the way that the apology was done was like, it was really like a minimal viable product. So that was like, it would get him off. But like you said, it was laying the ground for him to come back later. The basic idea behind the apology was that he had made errors in sort of journalistic procedure, you know, that he had failed to to quote properly. You know, he hadn't put the right quotation marks in the right place or credited people as he should have done, rather than the fact that it was widespread misrepresentation that he was doing. He was plagiarizing, but he was also through plagiarizing, lying about people's responses in order to discredit them. I'm sure Tony Negri could have sued if he'd wanted. Absolutely. And so he framed this whole apology and this whole retreating from the independent and everything with the now sort of like hilariously famous quote, I've been subjected to a trial by Twitter, (laughs) which we've seen so many journalists and so many men do since. I'm thinking off the top of my head of somebody who I'm sure would love to sue me for this Rupert Myers basically did exactly <laughs> you're going to say him. Yeah. He followed me and unfollowed me when I was on Twitter several times and I sort of looked at him and just thought I've got no interest in following you back whatsoever so he couldn't message me but I'm sure he would have done. Yeah. <laughs> Get off my <laughs> eggs! <laughs> looks like a peregrine falcon. <laughs> With, with his Kinder eggs. Oh my god! I, I think that's an in joke at this point, Julia. I don't think anyone yeah, else took up before that. Before that's funny. Explain that. Um... <laughs> no, it's just there was a, well, first of all, his face in profile looks like a peregrine falcon. He's got a. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Secondly, there was a Daily Mail article a couple of years ago about, I don't know even what the story was about, some like four-year-old boy with Kinder Eggs, but the four-year-old boy was the spitting image of Rupert Myers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's poor you Rupert Myers. Oh, I, I, I hope he grows up and lives a good life despite that. <laughs> <laughs> Rupert Myers or the kid? Yeah, I thought you meant Rupert <laughs> No, I don't hope he has a good life. I hope he has a terrible one. I hope he grows up, though. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, yeah, Rupert Myers joins Johan Hari in this group of people who sort of issue a sort of minimising and disingenuous apology. And Myers was even more explicit about just, didn't he just like delete all his tweets and say, I'll be back in 2018? Yeah, like, literally. <laughs> Am I right in thinking that Harry features in John Ronson's book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed? I haven't uh, read it. I've I mean... got a copy, so I can go over and get it from the <laughs> other side of the room now. <laughs> it's been a while since I read it. It was before I knew it was uncool on the left, so I gave it a read out of curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, this was also happening at a time where like, there was this sort of strange clash between 
between journalists and social media or between mm. commentators and social media. Um, this was when the discourse around trolls was sort of really coming up. There was this misrepresentation of what the idea of a troll was for a start. There was this panic around what trolls are going to do to public discourse. And there was a lot of, it was still forming. There were still journalists who were like, this is going to die off and social media won't really have a long-term effect here. And there were still people who were just sort of refusing to engage or who were taking any sort of criticism as trolling. But I think that's really really important will look really important especially in the future is seeing how this moment of like the spike in people being able to respond straight away to journalists about their opinions how that has sort of helped form and change into like this sort of Corbyn moment of the last couple of years and Mm. this wider establishment both on the left and on the right of sort of anti-establishment thought and action and stuff but yeah at that point that was this point where like this idea of trolls was really at its height I don't know if you remember also I mean I feel like 2011 was a particularly interesting moment partly because someone like Hari just couldn't get away with behaving the way he behaved anymore you know this sort of mendacious effort to sort of police the left limits of political discourse that ceased to be possible because people could call him out not just for individual misdemeanors but you know the entire nature of his journalistic project of course at the same time you know a lot of the phone hacking stuff was carried by Twitter and in particular, you know, a very well-coordinated campaign to tell people not to advertise in the news of the world. Yeah, you know, people yeah. sort of understood this clickbaity style of journalism and, you know, what its sort of revenue model was and how to kind of hit it. And of course, you had the London riots and you had like David Cameron and others very explicitly saying, look, do not attempt to understand this. It's just mindless criminality. There's no more context or anything than that. And I think the best thing I saw on Twitter about the riots was actually by the Surreal Football Twitter account, which is sadly long gone. But they positioned themselves, a sort of thing was happening at the same time where blogging had very much been incorporated into the mainstream. And I feel like blogging kind of fell off a cliff at this point. Because what had opened up was this sort of division between people who were just quite transparently using blogging to get into the mainstream media, people who were doing it for the sake of doing it and were very opposed to mainstream media and then people who fell somewhere between the two you know failed commentary at if you will surreal football were very much anti any sort of assimilation into the mainstream media and the best thing i saw on twitter was them just saying tory policy through the ages 1981 no such thing as society 2011 why do these people have no qualms about taking our stuff? <laughs> <laughs> but it's that simple. It's funny because it is that simple. I didn't even dare retweet it. My favourite artefact of the 2011 riots is a, a moment on Twitter, or I think it was on that website Storify, actually, ah, yeah. that a friend of a show, Jules D, made, which <laughs> was basically like a hundred celebrities of varying stature calling for the army to intervene in the yes. London riots. Yes. It's called like... <laughs> It's called Scratch like the late the latent fascism of British public life or something. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's a really good essay by E. P. Thompson called The Crime of Anonymity, which I think about a lot I was thinking about a lot at this period actually, which is about people's relationship to their landlords in the eighteen seventies and about how basically the thesis of the essay is there emerged these things called local gazettes, the sort of growth of like cheap printing technology and distribution networks and more literate population was producing these local gazettes that were run by the sheriff of the local area. And what would happen is some poor farmer would be like at his wit's end and send a threatening letter to his landlord 
saying, you know, be nicer to your, not peasants, whatever they were, as the time, you know, be, be, be nicer to your tenants, sorry, yes, and uh, be, nice, be, be nice to your tenants or something nasty will happen. And yeah. what would happen is the sort of terrified landowner would send this to the sheriff and the sheriff would publish the letter in the Gazette saying, if anyone has any knowledge of who wrote this, there's a reward. And it became this communication system where people start to realise that other people had the same shared class circumstances as them. And then it became this sort of phenomena of people writing increasingly aggressive and violent letters, knowing that they're going to be published. Right? And for the first time, that they realised they had a way to communicate a general dissatisfaction that actually a lot of the times there was no intention of it ever spilling over to violence. And with that, the tone of the letters changed from please be nice to your people to like really specific demands and then with claims of threats of like extremely horrific torture and punishment if they don't and like that i think was what was happening at the same time with twitter this is like quite an outlandish theory but i'm gonna i'm gonna <laughs> put it down but it's that for the first time people were realizing that it wasn't just them who were pissed off with either politicians or journalists and commentators and they were expressing themselves in like language that you could never would seem you know horrific and aggressive but actually a lot of the time was almost like a comic violence because they realized that that's how they would make an impact and that that was them being that was them being shared for example var of piss yeah (laughs) Yeah. there's there's not that much difference from like threatening to burn down all your hayricks and threatening to dry on your piss it's the same sort of language and yeah yeah, exactly yeah yeah, I'm going to steal your horse. But it was a way that people were starting to realise that there was this shared thing. And the response to it at the time on Twitter was very much like, these people are trolls. For example, the Var of Piss thing. Like, was that Piss Wizard? Um, no, was I think it? it was... No, I don't think it was Piss Wizard. We'll come to him in a minute. Yeah, but, uh, well, for something. example, Piss Wizard was getting in the Daily Mail like regularly with these like <laughs> extremely comical threats of violence. <laughs> Actually, like, Piss Wizard had always had quite a sort of nuanced understanding, like, was smart, had, like, genuine, a genuine analysis and critiques of the bullshit, like, clubbiness of those groups and was making themselves heard. I don't know. I'm, I think, I'm, I think I'm trying to think of Var of Piss, and it seems somebody called Hestmord. Yeah. Hestmord. But if you Google Var of Piss, like, the first thing that comes up is a Storify. The second thing that comes up is entry number 95 in the 100 worst people on Twitter blog. <laughs> Which I think would look very different if it was written now. And the oh, real is... politic number one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guarantee that's written by some fucking appalling melt. Like, sorry if it's written by any of your friends or anything. <laughs> I do trying... know who it is, but I'm not going to name them. But then the third one is Bar of Piss Incidents, a Freedom of Information Request. <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 so, so what's the story behind this? I'm just going to look it up. Um, freedom of information request. This request I think someone so, wanted to know from the police whether he actually ever did go to the police. And, uh, and oh. No, no, it was to ask if anyone had been drowned in a vial of piss. Mr. P. Gould made this freedom of information request to Metropolitan <laughs> Police Service, MPS. Then there's a big cross and it says, the request was refused by Metropolitan Police Service. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Metropolitan Police Service, how many calls to the emergency services in the past year have involved vars of piss? 
there's that. But yeah, I mean, I think this is probably a good place to go back to some of the stuff I was talking about with The Guardian and the States, but another place in particular. You know, by this time, I'd actually finished doing the Transgender Journey series. I finished that in, I think, sort of November 2012. And I really wanted to kind of keep a low profile for a bit. I was really exhausted with having put myself out so much and thrown over so much of my life to sort of public discourse with this kind of political aim of improving the discourse on trans stuff. I was actually trying to get a regular slot with Common is Free. I went to them and I had a meeting with someone there and they said, look, what do you write about? And I said, well, look, you know, I write about history and literature and you know, experimental literature and film and you know, underground music and politics and football. But I also write about like LGBT and particularly trans issues. And they said, well, we've got all those other things covered, but if you could write about trans issues for us, that would be great. Which mm. was kind of precisely what I didn't want to do. I really wanted a space yeah. where I could write about trans issues if I needed to, if something came up that really felt like it needed answering but otherwise I didn't want to and then shortly afterwards the Italian author Nanni Balestrini published a novel through Verso that was sort of an early kind of example of kind of algorithm use it was a sort of 15 chapter book and each chapter had 15 sets of two paragraphs so the two paragraphs were always published together but they could be published in any order within the chapter so you had this sort of incredible range of combinations that could be published and so Comment is Free published a piece on this shortly after it was released with the headline the book that tells a hundred trillion stories but none that I'd like to read so you know if you're looking for a gimmick with a twist you could do worse than the latest edition of Nanny Balafrini's Tristano which is the kind of thing you would have expected Johan Hari to say about it yeah. do, do you know who wrote this piece? I've got it up now it was a Holly Baxter who I don't really see a lot of now but I I'm think she does still write for them. You see her name occasionally on yeah. some, like, bad liberal takes. <laughs> I mean, this was really just, you know, it just made me so angry that, you know, I'd been told, oh, we've got this covered. I mean, the sort of stupidity of British coverage of experimental literature is another show. And in fact, it's something I dealt with on my resonance show, Sweet 212, like we did a show on this recently. By the way, I listened to your Russian Revolution episode last <laughs> night. I found yeah. that really, really interesting. Thanks. No, I mean, that was a really nice show. Like, we had Owen Hathaway, who was another person who was, you know, at this time trying to write for Comment is Free and just finding that it wasn't really for him you know i think he got frustrated with saying more or less the same thing every week with having to get fairly complicated stuff that often needs a lot of explaining into this sort of 600 700 word structure i mean the the last thing i wrote for comment is free was in 2013 and it was when fallon fox who was a mixed martial arts fighter had transitioned and wanted to fight in the women's section and because i've written quite a lot on like trans issues and sport and been involved in quite a lot of campaigning about football in particular and not homophobia and bi and transphobia the guardian commissioned me to write a comment pieces about this and i think what they might have wanted was the kind of like Fallon Fox as a woman should she be allowed to fight in the women's section you know they wanted that piece and I couldn't be bothered quite frankly it would be boring to write it would result in me getting a tidal wave of abuse nothing about it would have been worth it so instead I tried to write a sort of overview of you know the sort of history of like men and women's segregation sport and moments at which that had broken down or whatever but then that meant trying to tell quite a detailed history and like so I argued them up to 750 words and I just remember oh, wow. writing and just thinking I'm more than halfway through this piece and I'm at the 1928 Olympics. Yeah. 
Shit. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't so I didn't write for them again. But by then, the Julie Birchall thing had happened, which was sort of early 2013, I think. Like, Suzanne Moore had written a piece for the Statesman. It was actually, on the whole, a pretty good piece. It was about female anger. And it included this line about people wanting the body of a Brazilian transsexual. And quite a lot of people got angry about this line, saying, look, you know, the murder rate for trans women in South America, and particularly Brazil, it's through the roof. You know, even the trans supermodel you're referring to, Leia T, was publicly disowned by her father, who was a famous football player. It seems like a cheap and dated stereotype. Yeah, and I mean, an editor should have just taken that out. Yeah. Um, you know, I think if I'd been editing that piece, I'd have just been like, it doesn't need that, it doesn't add anything. It yeah, that's it's any just an incredibly lazy gag. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, it could have easily gone, but, you know, this developed into a quite bitter row. Again, I'm not going to go into all of this too much because this is a sort of big part of the end of my book. But, you know, the usual suspects were quite angry that, you know, the uppity trans people were yelling at them on the internet. And I remember there was like a Facebook thread with people like, I certainly remember Nick Cohen being involved with it, you know, talking about the nasty trans lot and, you know, including quite a lot of not particularly pleasant language about trans people, which resulted in Julie Birchall publishing this piece, which went on the Guardian website. And, you know, it was just full of all this, like, really, you know, opened up with this sort of authenticrat stuff about eating lobster and drinking champagne with her media mates, but still being Julie from Block. Um, <laughs> And uh, close with the threats that shims, shemales, whatever you're calling yourselves these days, don't threaten or bully we lowly natural born women, I warn you. And, you know, these lines like people having one's nuts taken off, dot, 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 by endless decades in academia, in brackets, see what I did there in case you'd missed it. I mean, it really was just fucking objectionable and it really never should have got to print but by that time you could see a lot of people who weren't trans had sort of read a lot more about these issues a lot more interested in them and just thought this stuff wasn't on and were no longer going to be taken in by the sort of bad faith use of freedom of speech as a defense which pe uh, people like nick cohen are always going to be taken in by well absolutely i mean that's the <laughs> shit, isn't it? and to be fair like i did meet nick cohen a few times and he did spend a lot of time like looking at my chest so he can't be that transphobic right i mean <laughs> There's a good description of him in your notes, actually. <laughs> lech, I think, is the phrase I used. Um, shriveled. Shriveled I mean, was the first word, because it cut out a bit. And, you know, you've got to hear the full description there. I think so. And, I mean, I, I did wonder about saying that on something that's going to be broadcast. But I remember a few years ago, Sheffield Wednesday Football Club tried to sue a few people who posted on a Sheffield Wednesday forum for, like, bad-mouthing people on the board of directors. And I can't remember how high up this got, but it got to a certain level and then it was decided that it was just abusive rather than libelous so um <laughs> I, I defense, but yeah i i don't know i there's a lot of stuff going around about nick cohen and i i, I think it would be hard for him to sue everybody who has a, <laughs> a, a a most likely very very true story about nick cohen i mean yeah i mean i i you know i i loathe him and like him quoting mark fisher in a recent piece uh oh, made me so angry i mean it really was despicable He's into like Angela Nagel and stuff now, oh, and, and, Nick Cohen and Freddie DeBoer. Yeah, he's he's big into the sort of uh, the pro free speech left, the anti political correctness left, whatever you want to call them. God, I mean, by this point, I was just exhausted, and I spent a lot of that day that that piece was published. I'd actually just been evicted from my house, so I had mm. two weeks to move, and I'd set aside that Sunday to really get going with like packing stuff and cleaning because like my housemate had already gone. 
and you know spent the whole day like dealing with it but i saw people on twitter saying oh the guardian probably think that they can get juliet jakes to write a response and that will make this all right and you know it obviously put me in a pretty difficult position so what i did was work behind the scenes a lot more spoke to people at various publications saying well look if you do want to publish responses here are people who might be good other writers Mm. said i want to write something about this and I would say, well, let me have a look at the copy because I can help you take out any turns of phrase that, you know, you might unintentionally upset people with whatever and make it less intimidating for people to publish stuff that, you know, meant to be helpful. So, you know, I did a lot of stuff like that. The best part of the whole thing was just seeing the screen grabs of Alan Rusbridge's Twitter feed, which is like an endless scroll. of It's actually an observer piece. Um, <laughs> And uh, as my friend Daniel once, he was just like, Alan, you don't need to reply to Piss Wizard. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, the whole thing, you know, I mean, there was an awful lot of humour in it, really. And the piece got taken down by the end of the day, whereupon everyone's hero, Toby Young, up and read it in the Telegraph. And there was still a lot of... Oh, it's disgusting. I mean, we don't need to waste much time on him, but... um, No, we'll be doing a full episode on him. We'll we'll be reviewing the film How to Lose Friends and Alienate People. Well, have fun with that. I mean, I had to watch The Danish Girl, as I said, and that was bad enough, but yeah. (laughs) And I mean, yeah, so people were still complaining that Birchall's freedom of speech had been denied to her by the sort of Stalinist trans Twitter mob. So she's had the same piece published in two national newspapers within 24 hours. Like... (laughs) I mean, I guess this was a sort of catch of the Milne-Rusbridge era of The Guardian, was that mm. whilst I, I'm sure, I don't know about Rusbridge, or I'm sure Seamus Milne isn't transphobic himself, but yeah. Rusbridge himself is very libertarian-minded, and Seamus Milne, in order to publish all this really radical stuff in the comment section, he had to buy into this kind of, we'll have balance, and publish something very reactionary as well, to kind of offset whatever kind of radicalism he put into the pages of the guardian but yeah. it wasn't just an observer piece <laughs> okay my bad <laughs> but hang on was russ bridger not because isn't Catherine viner editor of the guardian and the observer i'm not sure i, swear, I mean basically I swear. every comment piece that got published in the observer just got cross-posted onto comment is free i know yeah. there were people at comment is free that were particularly upset that this piece had been published in their name and they'd have nothing to do with it. I'm not that. sure what Catherine Viner's position is, but, you know, quick bit of Googling, I'm sure we'll set us straight. But, um, <laughs> editor-in-chief of The Guardian, yeah, I don't, I know, I think The Observer has a separate editor. But, um, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, oh, she co-wrote My Name is Rachel Corrie, I didn't know that. There you go, Wikipedia, teaches so something new every day. But, I mean, I sort of feel like a lot of the trans stuff, these sort of battle lines were really being drawn, and sort of techniques were being sort of developed that ended up being quite similar to the Corbyn stuff. One second, Juliet, just so we can have this properly chronologically. Um, I found a piece on the Guardian website from November 2017, Mm. um, which was, I think, where I got this idea that she edits both the Guardian and the Observer. It's a piece quoting Catherine Viner, and it says, Catherine Viner, in turbulent times we need good journalism more than ever, and it describes her in the subheading as Guardian and Observer Editor-in-Chief. Oh, right. Yeah, I'm I'm seeing John yeah, John McHolland is the Observer Editor, I think. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't know then. More fake news from The Guardian. <laughs> <laughs> that you're spreading. Yeah. <laughs> well, we know that is the nature of the hard left. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> and that's all of us, right? <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. 
Yeah, so, I mean, you know, after I tried to write regularly for Comment is Free, you know, I ended up writing for The Statesman. Mm. In that I would get my face on their website. So I was sort of attached to the publication. I would just, every time I had something to say, I would say it. And for the first year or two, really, I was really quite happy with this. I mean, the pay wasn't great, and I did it around another job. I had actually a very boring admin job in 2013. I just did a lot of the writing when I was supposed to be working. Um, (laughs) You know, they're all kind of on the clock. But, you know, I got to write on lots of different things, kind of anything from architecture to kind of queer performance art to, you know, unpacking the life and death of Justin Fashionu or experimental literature or, you know, even stuff about the Commune of Paris or interviews with Mackenzie Walker about the Situationist International. Again, I really sort of came to feel that you could talk about fairly radical left things in mainstream spaces as long as you did them under the guise of culture or history. And I think if you were advancing those sorts of perspectives to do with stuff that was still fairly current, that was when you got a problem. Just to give a little story about becoming a regular blogger for The New Statesman, because I feel this episode's been quite short on (laughs) humour. I sort of agreed to do that, I think, summer 2012. And that was when I had my lower surgery. So I was out of London for quite a while I went to recover at my parents home because my mum used to be a nurse so she looked after me and I came back to London after like a month away and found that the statesman had sent me as a sort of a gift for becoming a regular blogger they'd sent me a Waterstones gift voucher and you know I thought okay this is a nice gesture great there wasn't a Waterstones near me so you know I kind of this thing sat around for ages and then I went to Brighton, where I used to live, to see a few old friends. And, you know, it was quite difficult. They got great Waterstones in Brighton. Well, exactly. Brighton Waterstones is really good. So I was very excited about spending this gift voucher. So I took what I imagined was a reasonable amount of books to the counter, about 50 quid's worth of books, put them down on the counter, gave them the voucher, the card. And the woman behind the counter just said, you've got five pounds on here. <laughs> And I said, And she said, you've got five pounds on here. And I just sort of stood there, just kind of staring, slightly open mouth. And she was like, are you right? And I was like, it's just, this is from a magazine that I'm writing for semi-regularly. And can you just get that again? They're like, it's five pounds. So I just sheepishly put all the books back and left the shop. But, um... You could have, you could have got a discounted copy of What's Left from the bottom. Right. <laughs> could have got five copies of Fox left by Nick. Well, a- actually, I was in Brighton the other day and I went to the Waterstones there and I, I noticed that there was an event advertised in the window that might be interesting to you guys. Now, oh, yeah. this event is someone who's been mentioned previously in this episode, Laurie Penny. <laughs> oh, yeah. In conversation with the big man himself, Johan Harry. Oh, oh fuck. no. Um... Oh, Fuck! Thanks! And this really winds me up. Like, lots of people who should know better helping to rehabilitate him. Like, you know. John McDonnell! Well, yeah, but, you know, (laughs) but this is how this works, right? I mean, we talked earlier about Hari kind of astroturfing discourse around himself. And if you aren't, I mean, Laurie's a very different case, but, you know, in the case of a lot of the people he's got to endorse him, I think if you weren't very involved with the fringes of liberal and left journalism and had something, Mm. like I did at the time, had something invested in the integrity of it, then you probably weren't paying that much attention to this stuff. And if you were to look at it, you'd probably think, well, he made a mistake, he apologised, he should be given another chance. And the way this plays out is that people like me who find this infuriating and dispiriting you know we look like the ones with the problem mm. Uh, and I, I you know I, I don't know if that's accidental my feeling is it isn't <laughs> I mean he really is just the Lance Armstrong of journalism it's fucking disgraceful <laughs> <laughs> 
(laughs) (laughs) That maybe sounds unfair. I mean, I did mention it on Facebook, and a friend of mine replied saying, yeah, but Lance Armstrong's actions actually made him good at the thing he was trying to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Always, even despite the incredible amount of cheating, still a shit journalist. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's the thing that his apology sort of was laying the ground for. Is like I said, to make it about procedure and not about representation, because people are now saying, well, he was plagiarizing, but then he's learned his lesson and now he's really thoroughly putting his footnotes and referencing and stuff. But actually, he's only got this position to write this book because of his previous career. And then his previous career was based so hugely on plagiarism and misrepresentation. Like, why does he deserve to, you know, still have the ability to come back when there are so many amazing young writers, journalists, old writers, journalists who could really produce something amazing if they're given that level of resources to do this book. Yeah. He laid a groundwork then. And so even the defense of him now as having learned his lesson, like he might have learned his lesson, but he should presumably therefore start from the beginning and build up his reputation as a journalist on the ground and not doing what is essentially a sort of mid-career book. Well, this, yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's just ridiculous that he should be allowed to still dine out on a failed career exactly like, yeah. in his shit apology he basically admits that he's a shit journalist <laughs> like, that's what that apology is that apology reads like oh sorry i didn't actually know how to do journalism he went to do um, ethics training apparently i mean i don't know yeah. that <laughs> but he needed ethics training to know not to like lie and make shit up and deliberately misrepresent people because you know you wouldn't know that at the start yeah. um yeah. good on him for making yeah. the well, turn. well the good news is i don't think he can sue you for calling him the Lance Armstrong of journalism I mean just, just if they you know if they stick you in the dock just say he's good at cycling or something yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll argue about that but fuck it I don't care but anyway he again sort of faded into the background and you know I sort of spent a lot of 2013 and 2014 blogging for the Statesman and you know it didn't seem like an institutionally transphobic publication in the way that the Guardian had seemed to some people like it was in the mid noughties It didn't seem like that at all when I got there. And I had this great platform to, you know, as I said, write about trans stuff when I really felt the need. One point at which I really did was with the Richard Littlejohn and Lucy Meadows case, uh, which you may well remember. Which... Oh, was this the one Stuart Lee did a routine on? No, that was, that was about his also objectionable stuff about the serial killer in Ipswich who'd uh, been killing sex workers. Oh, yeah. God. Lucy Meadows was the teacher, and Richard Littlejohn wrote that Daily Mail hit piece on her that essentially led to her committing suicide. Oh, fucking yeah. hell. I'm sorry. I just... Mainstream journalism was saying, oh, you can't blame Richard Littlejohn for this. And yeah, I'm sure people taking their own lives has complex set of factors behind it, but... I think it's fair to say it didn't fucking help. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Snail very tellingly deleted the piece pretty much as soon as her death was announced. You know, this was mm. a teacher in an Accrington primary school teacher who transitioned and arranged everything with the school. And mostly it had been obviously difficult, but it sounded like they found a way to manage it. And uh, Little John picked up on this story from like a local paper and wrote a piece entitled something like, he's not just in the wrong body, he's in the wrong job. And, you know, how can you have this around children? And, you know, the usual just like conservative transphobic and you know she sort of died not long after I was just absolutely obviously livid about the whole thing and the statesman gave me a platform to write a long kind of manifesto about lots of structural problems with how the media dealt with trans issues and no one else would have let me do that actually so it became very very frustrating when they kept taking on a number of writers who you know sort of started off with this kind of gender critical position and can I just say at this point do any of you ever hear the phrase gender critical and just immediately think of that bit in uh, 
I'm Alan Partridge, where he describes himself as homo-sceptic. <laughs> <laughs> I think of the white supremacist phrase, race realist. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and again, it's, it's just the kind of failings of liberalism, really, because, you know, I think the line of thinking was, well, look, if we publish Juliet doing pro-trans stuff and some other people doing gender-critical stuff, then, you know, readers can make up their own minds. But again, uh, surprising as it might sound, some people like the new state and comment pieces are not the world. And the balance of power in the world at large is not the same as the balance of power purely within the New Statesman comment page. <laughs> <laughs> was yeah. Cowley editing when you started writing? He was the overall editor, yeah. I only ever actually met him once. I met him at the feminist debate that we did at Conway Hall in 2013, which kind of, in hindsight, felt like the sort of high point of this awkward truce between the left and sort of liberals and centrists. The Lib Dems were over by then, <laughs> and, you know, just nobody really expected anything from the Labour Party at that point, mm. that particular version of the Labour Party was dead on its feet. So, you know, we, we did this sort of discussion with all the female bloggers at the Statesman, and Jason Cowley just came backstage. I mean, he might have introduced himself, I'm not sure, but the only thing I really remember is him announcing that the Statesman was getting four times as many readers on the website. <laughs> as the well, he's a man who needs no introduction. Well, no, exactly. <laughs> I mean, a household name. I mentioned earlier, like, these swanky journalistic do's. And the number of times I met someone who would just come and talk to me, would not ask me a thing about what I did or even what my name was some of the time, and would just talk for sort of, <laughs> long as it took them to spot somebody else who was more useful to them. They would just talk about themselves for the whole of that time, and then just, like, go <laughs> away. And, you know, there was a couple in particular where I just sort of turned around to whoever I was with and was just like, what just happened? Like... <laughs> 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 oh yeah and by the way real politic has far more listeners from the politics home podcast so i hear yeah, <laughs> the, the uh the melt publications of the year awards 2017 i believe that's <laughs> up <laughs> but, you know with with the statesman like i wrote a lot of stuff for them that i was really proud of and for a long time i felt well look having this platform is quite useful it still sort of felt even at that point worth working in mainstream media because it still felt like this stuff had more of a readership more of a cachet readers took it more seriously you know people got far more angry about things that were published in the guardian or the statesman or places like that than things that were published on personal blogs and i mentioned this really with regards to one of the last things i wrote it was actually the last thing i had commissioned for the statesman blog i did publish a couple of things after but they were commissioned for the culture sections but the last thing I published in that context, really, was a 8,500-word article about, you know, the sort of trans people versus radical feminist discussion, which had already just become incredibly difficult. Yeah. yeah. Point. And credit Helen Lewis, I pitched it to her. You know, obviously in my head I was sort of responding to some of the stuff that the Statesman were doing. But, you know, the New Yorker published a long piece by a writer called Michelle Goldberg. And it's quite illustrative of how all this stuff works. It was only when somebody who I hadn't met and couldn't call a colleague in any meaningful sense... It was only when one of those people published something that took this feminist anti-trans position that I really felt comfortable writing and saying, can I write a response to this? But because mm. I up quite a good relationship, you know, I was able to get that amount of space because I knew exactly how this could have played out. I could have spent all of my time just replying to transphobic pieces, you know, in the Statesman or elsewhere. And, you know, every time someone wrote something, just write the response. And, you know, as I said earlier... That was the one thing I just didn't want to do. It's boring. It doesn't help anyone, really. You know, it keeps the discourse in a very unhelpful place. So, yeah. you know, I wrote this long, long piece. I mean, it was long enough to carry two uses of the phrase thundering bellend. I remember that. 
the first one was about Godfrey Bloom, I think. Um, I can't oh, remember something about Godfrey Bloom. The first one was about people in debating societies at private schools. Oh, yeah, um, oh, yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's 100% fair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it closed the circle, the thundering bellend circle. You know who's a good person to call a thunderous bellend? Thundering bellend. I think bell-end. we're going to be here a while, aren't we? But, yeah. Oliver Cam. <laughs> Oliver Cam. Because he, 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 he goes... Didn't he kill Kieran Morris? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. He, in return for Kieran threatening him with a baseball bat, he, he uh, drowned him at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. He strapped concrete to his feet. Yes, yeah. Um... <laughs> Because he goes by the name The Thunderer, doesn't he, Oliver oh, Cam? Right. <laughs> oh. Sorry, sorry, Juliet. No, 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 it's Tom, fine. No, I'm, Tom I'm, Chivers. I'm sort of glad I heard that. So <laughs> Tom Chivers wrote something on Twitter and he, he pulled up the stand first for my statesman piece and just said something like, you know, this is the most uninviting stand first for any article I've ever read. Because I had mentioned that I wanted to write about something else, but I'd had to spend 8,500 words on, like, answering these sort of concepts that were debunked by sexologists in like 1913 yeah <laughs> uh, so he said this is the most uninviting stand first i've ever read and you know to be generous to him i can understand that position i could get my head around the mentality <laughs> just think no thanks well uh, you know he's one to complain all his fucking readers would rather be reading something else <laughs> <laughs> well i took great delight in replying to him and saying actually it's the most read thing on the states and website for the last two days um <laughs> and it's been trending in london but it could only have had that impact because it was in that particular space the same with the guardian series and i think if i'd written it for like my own personal blog like i don't think it would have got that sort of traction and it sort of led to things that people don't really see either i mean off the back of it i got invited by penn international to go and speak at their annual congress where they were having a discussion about adding lgbt as a sort of thing that they would protect in their kind of constitution on kind of freedom of speech grounds you know there was like the russian propaganda law being passed uh, a copy of this was in the Kyrgyz parliament. What was this organisation? Sorry, so I think it's... National is poets, essayists and novelists and it's been going okay. for 90 years and it's a sort of pro-freedom of speech organisation. Of course, I have lots of issues about these disingenuous ways in which freedom of speech has been used in kind of public discourse but I think ceding freedom of speech as a principle to disingenuous centrists is not actually the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So off the back of this article, you know, someone I knew there invited me to speak on this panel in Kyrgyzstan. Which then led to discussions with people in government in Kyrgyzstan about this legislation that was going through. And it led to Penn doing a lot more work on LGBT stuff because the resolution to protect LGBT freedom of expression got passed like unanimously. Uh, And I was able to add like transgender, queer and intersex to the constitution as well when I was there. So... You know, writing in these spaces does have these weird consequences that you can't necessarily predict. And I think a lot of people in these circles, like me included at times, have really tried to protect themselves by saying, oh, no one's reading. This stuff doesn't actually make any difference. But it does or it can do. And I think you have the responsibility to behave as though it does. There was a great moment while I was in Bishkek. I did a talk at the Bishkek Feminist Society and I ended up talking about writing for The Guardian and how that had led me to be in Bishkek because, as I said, like no one comes here and no one pays any attention to, you know, feminist and LGBTQI struggles here. And there was a woman called Selby translating for me, doing translation from English to Russian for the group. And I got onto The Guardian and transphobic stuff in The Guardian and Selby just started laughing and saying, did you respond to that Judy Birchall thing? And I was like, fucking hell, like... refugees from Turkmenistan living in like fucking Bishkek and this stuff stunk all the way to Central Asia so <laughs> <laughs> like, you do have 
be prepared for the possibility that you know what you say kind of does get around does mean something um yeah and i've done this episode with you with that in mind <laughs> absolutely this now that i'm quite happy to so you had fairly good relationships with the liberal media and as you say from 2010 to 13 roughly there was this kind of uneasy truce and then what went wrong i don't really know i mean to give a very personal story that now feels like the apogee of this for me i remember sort of autumn 2013 having yet another big bout of depression and really feeling like i was struggling and uh, mentioning this on facebook and uh, i immediately got a message from sarah dighton who i was friends with on there at the time just saying look juliet here's my number call me now and you know it's like three in the afternoon she'd like children to pick up from school we'd never actually met at that point we only met once but, you know, we had like a sort of really friendly and funny and good natured chat. And it really, really helped. You know, it did make you feel a lot better about things. And then, of course, over the course of the next year, she took a very different path and sort of. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we all know what sort of things yeah. she's been writing for the last couple of years. Um, well, we know who the hard transphobes <laughs> are. Well, exactly. <laughs> And, you know, and it's a shame because, you know, it wasn't always like that. And I found myself in a particularly difficult position because a lot of these people who were taking these positions were people I had met and were people who I thought were all right. Um, you say you had quite a good relationship with Glosswitch as well. Well, I only met her once as well. Like, we did this feminism debate together that I mentioned earlier and we met each other and I thought she was really sound, to be honest. And again, you know, we found ourselves on opposing sides of this argument and I just didn't know how to deal with it. I mean, it came to ahead for me with the statesman the point at which i was like you know i had lots of people by the end of 2014 i had lots of people telling me to quit and i felt i probably should but you know it's just a character issue on my part actually like i'm not very good with active conflict and i can take an awfully long time to make a break with something in particular and probably put up with too much and i had a lot of people in journalism not just like you know the kind of outsiders i mentioned earlier but a lot of people in journalism saying to me look you're putting up with far too much here you really shouldn't and in the end i did kind of stand down but the point at which i stood down was a statesman piece i'm just going to get it up Right, at this point, both Hugh and I had to go to the bathroom and Juliet had to get a glass of water. So this is a good natural break to leave you on a big note of suspense until you know, a few days' time when we'll be dropping the next episode. So, until part two, later on, comrades. Great atomic power, you rise in me.
It's tech, it's exciting, it's young people, it's crowdsourcing.